0: Thank you, Pastor Thomas, and thank you, worship team. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to the book of Matthew in chapter 5. This morning, we want to look at a very familiar passage, and we want to examine this in the light of how we as believers, as followers of Christ, as disciples of Jesus Christ, can live out the values of Christ's kingdom for his glory. Now, as we look into this passage this morning, we have to admit that there is some, a bit of controversy, a bit of questions, as to, to what degree this passage applies to believers today. Because as we look uh, in Matthew, Matthew presents the ministry of Jesus Christ And back in the middle of the previous chapter in Matthew chapter 4, it says from that time Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then if we jump down to verse 23, we read that Jesus was going all throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel or the good news of the kingdom. And we realize that today we are not living in the physical kingdom under the physical reign of Jesus Christ. And so there is some debate as to how we as believers should interpret this passage because it is given in Matthew in the context of the kingdom. And while we will not take the time this morning to go through a theology of the kingdom, I think pretty soon one of the ABS classes will be doing that, and there are other professors here in the audience who could treat that much better than I ever could hope to. So we won't delve into all of that, but I think it will suffice us to say this morning that we realize that the kingdom of which Christ is speaking is part of what we can call an already and not yet. Already in the sense that Jesus, who himself was the king, has come, and not yet because he is not physically here reigning on this earth as king. But when Jesus came, he established, and we see this in this passage known as the Sermon on the Mountain, specifically what we'll look at today, the section which is commonly known as the Beatitudes. Jesus gave, if you will, an ethic, a system of values for his kingdom, for all who would welcome that kingdom, long for that kingdom as to how they are supposed to live. And these kingdom values are of particular interest to us today because they are very opposite of the values of any other kingdom that we will find on this earth. And so the question that I want us to consider this morning is not necessarily are we in the kingdom or to what degree is the kingdom here, but let us flip that question around and let us ask ourselves this morning as we look into this passage, Not are we in the kingdom, but is the kingdom of God in us? Are the values expressed here in this passage showing up in my heart and my life as I seek to follow Jesus Christ? As we look at the passage, and I invite you to open your Bibles with me, and we'll read the first 16 verses of Matthew chapter 5. And we already laid the context of Jesus going throughout the region of Galilee preaching and teaching, proclaiming this good news of the gospel. And as he did this, great crowds followed him. Because in addition to his preaching and teaching, he was healing, he was casting out demons, he was performing all sorts of miracles, and it created a great crowd. And so as we get to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1, this is what Matthew records for us. It says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And as we look into this passage, we see that Jesus, as he begins this, what we know as the Sermon on the Mount, begins with a series of statements, eight statements, that all begin with the word blessed. Now it's important to realize what Jesus means when he says, that these people are blessed. Today, we see the word blessed popping up all over the place in our society. And there's really, this speaks to one of the ways that this word can be defined, as blessed is being someone who is fortunate or happy because of favorable circumstances. I think we can, uh, we can recognize this in, in what I call the, the hashtag blessed phenomenon. You've seen that, right? People post pictures, on Facebook, on Instagram, and, and you know they, they, they show these pictures of themselves in a wonderful circumstance, in a favorable circumstance. Maybe they're welcoming a new baby or celebrating an important life event, and they, they will hashtag it with the word blessed. And, and, and there can be all sorts of things, but anytime there is a favorable circumstance, this idea comes out that I am blessed. But really, this can be, in many cases, just a very vague allusion to God. And while we look at the context here, I think we can all recognize that this is not the kind of blessed, just the person who is enjoying a favorable circumstance that Jesus is necessarily speaking of here, because many of the circumstances that we see, at least humanly speaking, are not favorable. But there's a second definition, and I think this is more where Jesus is leaning, is is speaking of when he talks about and uses the word blessed. And this is the idea of someone who is a privileged recipient of divine favor. One who bears the stamp of approval of God on his life. And this is important for us to realize because as we look around at our society today, and we live in the culture where it's either the cancel culture or you're validated by the popular society. But many of these values that Jesus is going to speak of are going to be values that are very contrary to what our society today values. And it's important for us to understand that if we want to live a life that bears the stamp of God's approval, we cannot be people who are just conforming to the culture, conforming to what our society is encouraging us to be. And Jesus, as he introduces his kingdom and these values, he says, this is what a person who is blessed by God, who has God's stamp of approval on his life, is going to look like. And so as he lists each one of these eight characteristics of a blessed person, This is is the sense of what he is saying. So we want to ask ourselves, because I would imagine that if I asked for a show of hands and said, how many of you in your life want to have that stamp of approval of God? Want to hear, as Scripture says, well done, good and faithful servant. I imagine everyone in this room would raise their hand." So it behooves us to ask the question then, okay, so if we are wanting to hear that at the end of our lives, if we are wanting to live lives that bear God's stamp of approval, what should those lives look like? What are the values that we should be espousing? And so we are going to look at these eight, but I want us to look a little bit at the structure because while Matthew, they they may seem to be just a random list of eight different characteristics, Matthew presents these in a particular structure that is going to help us understand exactly what is going on and exactly what Jesus is saying here to those who would be his disciples. So the first one, Jesus starts out with in verse 3. I believe this is kind of the capstone. This is kind of the overarching theme. If if you want to look at it this way, verse 3 and verse 10 kind of serve as bookends. The first one, there are four internal characteristics that are going to characterize a person who is blessed by God, and then that's going to also manifest itself in four external characteristics. So the first one is an internal characteristic in verse 3, and then the last one is an external characteristic. And then sandwiched in between those, there are going to be a series of three different internal and external characteristics. So you can see it illustrated here, verse 3, is the the, the first, the overarching summary. And then in verse 4 we'll have an internal characteristic and we'll see the link and how that fleshes itself out as an external characteristic in verse 5. Back to verse 6 will be internal, to 7 will be external, 8 another internal, 9 will be an external characteristic, and then Verses 10 and following will kind of be the the summary, just like verse 3 is the the introduction, verse 10 will be the summary of what it will look like and what we will experience when we live our lives in this way. So let's look at these characteristics this morning. The first one we see in verse 3 is, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now this idea of being poor in spirit speaks of someone who recognizes their own lack of spiritual means and therefore is completely dependent upon God. We use this word poor. Someone who is poor is esteemed to be someone who is lacking a certain amount of necessary means. And we know that in our society, there are oftentimes programs that help those who are lacking a certain amount of means. But when we speak here, when Jesus speaks here, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. These are those who look at themselves, look at their own spiritual condition, and see their own spiritual bankruptcy. Paul spoke about this in Romans chapter 7 and verse 18 when he said, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. So someone who is poor in spirit understands that not only, well, first of all, what they're understanding is that they have nothing within themselves to earn salvation or to earn a right standing before God. Their salvation depends entirely on the finished work of Jesus Christ. And just like Paul said to the Ephesians, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works so that no one can boast. So there's no boasting going on over our spiritual condition because we realize that it is all a gift of grace from God. And that is not only in our position with Jesus Christ, but even in the day-to-day lives, we do not have anything That we can do in and of ourselves to bring us into a right relationship with God. There is nothing in me that is going to push me to follow God. It's like Paul said to the Galatians when he said, do you really think that you who have started this by the Spirit are going to be able to finish by the flesh? And someone who is poor in spirit has come to this deep understanding As the songwriter said, that nothing in my hands I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Someone who is poor in spirit. And, you know, as we think about this idea, this is diametrically opposed to much of the spirit of self confidence and presumption and independence that exists in our own society today. The poor in spirit refuse to judge or to compare themselves with others. And we have a beautiful illustration of that when Jesus talked about the Pharisee and the tax collector who went to the temple to pray. And the Pharisee stood there and he began his prayer by saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. And then he began to list all that he had done and all that he had accomplished. And yet the tax collector, the Bible said, he couldn't even lift up his eyes toward heaven but he beat on his chest and said, "God be merciful to me, a sinner." And I believe that if we are to live a life that expresses, that fleshes out the values of Christ's kingdom, we must start by being pure. About, I'm sorry, poor in spirit, and realizing that everything that we have, any good and perfect gift, as James says, comes from above comes from God. And really, this is the foundation because, as we will see, the rest of these blessed attitudes are going to build on this foundation of being poor in spirit. And so in verse 4, after describing someone who is poor in spirit, Jesus now says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And as we look at this and just take this at face value, this seems, again, very strange. Because as one of the commentators I was reading on Matthew said, we generally regard mourners as the most unfortunate of people. We see them as people to be pitied, to be helped, comforted, but not as those to be envied as the recipients of God's blessing. So in what sense is Jesus saying, blessed Having God's favor is someone who mourns. And I think if we interpret this in the light of the idea of poor in spirit, what we will see is Jesus is not just talking about any type of mourning, but specifically the mourning over sin and evil. And that starts when someone who is poor in spirit, they recognize the sin and the evil that is present in their own hearts. And they mourn deeply, over the sin and the struggle that they are waging every day. Again, if we go back to Romans 7, the Apostle Paul, he talks about this, and he says, the good that I want to do, I don't do, and the evil that I don't want to do, I find myself doing, O wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? It is this sense of of mourning, of being broken, of being grieved with the sin that we see in our own hearts. And so rather than looking out and comparing ourselves to others and saying, oh, I'm not so bad, I'm better than this person, I didn't. at least I didn't do that, we look deeply in our own hearts and we see and are grieved by the sin that is there. But not only do we mourn over sin that is in our own hearts, but even as we look at society around us, And not in a a judgmental way, but we see and we are grieved by the results, the effects of sin that we see, the destruction that sin brings to lives and to relationships of those around us. And we mourn over that sin. And Jesus says that for those who mourn, there is a beautiful promise that they shall be comforted. See, for it's only when we truly mourn over our own sin will we find the comfort that comes, number one, from being in Christ, but also from knowing that one day when Christ's kingdom comes in his fullness, we will be once and for all delivered from that sin. And we look towards that day. We long for that day. We pray with the saints. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. And we find the comfort in the here and now in the forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ. But you know, as someone is poor in spirit and are mourning over their sin, there is a way in which this attitude of mourning is now fleshed out. And this is where we see the link between verse 4 and verse 5, where now Jesus says, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. And in God's kingdom ethic, someone who is poor in spirit and who is mourning over their own sin and over the effects of sin in the world, as they see this, this is going to be fleshed out in a spirit of meekness. And you know, so often in our society today, We don't find much meekness, but when when someone sees something that grieves them, we often see an outpouring of rage, of, of frustration. But Jesus says, for those who are poor in spirit and who are mourning, that will flow out in meekness. Now, the word that is translated as meek is often misunderstood in our society today. It speaks of someone who is gentle, who is patient, someone who is waiting on God. It stands in contrast to the person who is very easily vexed or irritated by what is going on around him and therefore responds with harshness and with anger. But a meek person is willing to understand what God is doing in the world. It doesn't mean that they're not grieved by the effects of sin because just as we just established, they have been mourning over that but mourning is different than, than chafing, than being irritated and just having that, that frustration boil up in us. Someone who is meek is gently submitting himself to God's plan, even when it is difficult or un- to understand or to swallow. And as we look at our world around us and we see evil, we see oppression, we see all these evidences of sin in our hearts. We yearn for that to be changed. But yet we, don't, we shouldn't respond with, with anger, with hostility, with frustration. Even when we don't understand why God doesn't step in now and eradicate disease and illness and corruption and all of these things. This word meek was used oftentimes to describe a horse that had been broken. And though that horse possessed great strength, it had learned to be under control and to submit itself to the will of the master who was riding on its back. And in the same way, we should understand that meekness does not mean that there is a lack of strength, as the world often thinks of it but it is a deliberate decision by one who has strength not to be self-assertive and domineering, but to surrender ourselves to God's power and God's control. And as we are poor in spirit and mourning over our own sin, that should flesh itself out in a spirit of meekness. And look at what Jesus says about the meek. He said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now that seems somewhat paradoxical, doesn't it? Because in our society today, who are the ones who are rising to power? Who are the ones who are inheriting the things of this earth? Is it not the ones who are scheming, who are aggressive, who are self-assertive, and even violent and abusive? But this shows us to what degree God's kingdom is completely different. Or as one author described it, the upside-down kingdom. Because everything is inverted. Everything is different in God's kingdom. And God gives us the promise that his kingdom is different, and the end will not always be like we see things to be today. And while today, God at times may choose to elevate His children in the world, that is by no means a guarantee, which is very contrary to the prosperity, the health and wealth gospel that tells us that if we are children of God, we are supposed to be rich. We are supposed to be healthy. We are never supposed to have any problems. But God never promises that for today. But yet when his kingdom comes in its fullness, Jesus tells us that it is the meek who will inherit all things. And I think if we read Psalm chapter 37, this is going to help us grasp this whole idea of meekness. So keep your finger here in Matthew, but flip over with me to Psalm chapter 37. And I'm going to read this from the NIV text. I love the way the NIV renders this psalm. The psalmist says this, Do not fret because of those who are doing evil, or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like the green plants, they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him, and He will do this. He will make your righteous rewards shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It only leads to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed. But those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found, but the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. And this is exactly what Jesus was talking about when he said that his followers are to be meek. Not fretting, not chafing at everything that's going on, even though we may be distressed by it. But we commit it all to the Lord. We trust in what he is doing, and we submit our thoughts and our ideas to his sovereign plan. So this spirit of mourning over sin expresses itself in meekness. But as we mourn as well over sin, we'll see that this mourning produces something else, which is a craving for righteousness. And this is what we read in verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So a person who is characterized by being poor in spirit and mourning over his own sin and over the effects of the sin that he sees around him in the world, will naturally, it will produce in him a craving, a, a hunger, and a thirst for righteousness. And these words are very, very intense words used metaphorically to describe an intense longing, a craving, or an insatiable appetite. I think of a couple of verses in the Psalm, Psalm 42, verses 2 and 3 where David says, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? And also in Psalm 63, verse 2, the psalmist says, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you, My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and parched land where there is no water. And you can imagine, can't you, the the images that the psalmist paints of someone who has a hunger or a thirst for righteousness, for God. Someone who is in a desert land where there is no water, he, he, he quickly forgets about all other things. Everything else that might preoccupy his mind in a normal situation now disappears and he can only think of one thing, of finding water. And his mouth is parched. His lips become dry and cracked. And, and he looks and he searches until he finds water. And when he finds it, he just can't get enough. He will literally stick him, his entire face in that water and just drink it up until he can drink no more. And this is the image that Jesus is describing. For someone who is poor in spirit and mourning over his own sin primarily, he has now a craving, an insatiable appetite for righteousness. And this righteousness can be seen in two different ways. On the one side, it speaks of the righteousness that comes only from Christ himself as we realize that we have nothing, that we are spiritually bankrupt, we go to the only source of spiritual riches. And it is through Christ that we receive something that we could never receive on our own. It is through Christ that we find true satisfaction as we hunger and thirst for righteousness. And this is something that goes deeper than just religious ritual, than just coming to church once or twice a week, or reading our Bibles every day, or having a time of prayer. It's something that's deeper, that drives us, that, that consumes all of our thoughts. And while doing religious ritual may salve our consciences for a while, it will never provide us true satisfaction, it will never quench the deepest thirst of our soul. But on the other side of the coin, we can see that righteousness can also be understood, not simply of being in a right relationship with God and being justified, but now I want to flesh out that righteousness in my life. I want to live, and as Paul said, we already quoted Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, that it is by grace that we are saved and not of ourselves. It's a gift so that we cannot boast. But then verse 10 that says, for we are his workmanship, we are his masterpiece, being created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so a hunger and a thirst for righteousness is a desire to be in Christ, but also to flesh out the righteousness that Christ gives us. And the promise of this verse is that those who have this insatiable desire, this craving for righteousness, will be satisfied. And they are satisfied because, number one, they have found that righteousness in Jesus Christ, the only true righteousness. But number two, they are satisfied Because so great is their longing to live in a righteous state that that it consumes them and that they allow nothing else to infringe upon that. This same word of being satisfied is the word that was used to describe the crowds after Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fishes. You remember that miracle when Jesus multiplied the loaves and fishes for 5,000 men? And the Bible says that they ate... And we're satisfied. And then there was even more left over. And when we seek and we look for and we pursue our righteousness in Jesus Christ, we will be satisfied. Because the righteousness that he gives us is unlimited. And there will never be a lack when we look for our righteousness in Jesus. But we know Again, speaking in the terms of this already and not yet, we know that in our flesh, as long as we are in our flesh, we are constantly going to be battling with sin. We will never be purely righteous. We will never be totally righteous in this life, and so we look ahead to the coming of Christ's kingdom when all sin will be eradicated, and Jesus himself will come and reign in righteousness, and then we will understand and experience true joy and satisfaction in the righteousness that we will have because of Christ. Now, what does it look like when someone craves righteousness internally? In the world's mind, someone who is extremely righteous is like the Pharisee, isn't he? He's very judgmental. He's looking around. But Jesus says, no. In the values of the kingdom, someone who has, first of all, the basis of being poor in spirit and then is mourning over his own sin and craving righteousness, not only will outwardly he look meek, but the Scripture says in the next verse also, he will be merciful. And this is where Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, why does this flesh out in mercy? Because when we are truly poor in spirit, we're mourning over our sin, we're craving righteousness that cannot produce an arrogance and a judgmental spirit, but it has to produce a spirit of true humility. And in that humility, realizing who I am, as the the tax collector said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. When we receive mercy, we can then in turn be merciful to others. But many times, we tend to be like the servant in the parable that Jesus gave. You remember that parable of the servant who owed an enormous debt And his master was going to take him and was going to throw him into the debtor's prison where he would work until he had paid off all that debt. And this servant fell on his knees and he begged his master, he said, just have patience with me and I'll find a way to pay it all back. Which in itself was somewhat ludicrous considering the size of his debt. And the Bible says that his master had pity on him and he forgave him all that. But then what did that servant do? He went out, and he found another servant who owed him some money. And what did he do? The Bible says he grabbed him by the throat. And he said, pay me what you owe me. And ironically, that second servant used the exact same words with his brother. And he said, have patience with me, and I'll pay you everything. And the one who had received such great mercy refused give mercy. But Jesus says this is not how it should be in the kingdom of God. And when we have received mercy, when we understand the depths of the mercy and the forgiveness that we have, that should push us naturally to be merciful towards others. And Jesus himself, when Luke recounts this same version later on in the sermon, Jesus He records Jesus as saying, be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. So those who are merciful towards others, Jesus says here, they will receive mercy. It's kind of a cyclical idea. As we receive mercy from Jesus Christ, it allows us to be merciful to others. And then as we are merciful to others, it gives us a greater and a deeper appreciation for the mercy that we continue to receive daily from from Christ. His mercies are new every morning. His faithfulness is great to us. And so it's this cyclical idea of the more that we receive and understand mercy, we are better able to give it to others, and the more we give it out to others, the better we appreciate the mercy that we receive from Christ. But also, additionally, just practically speaking, when someone is merciful to us, isn't it much easier to be merciful to that person when they slip up? And I think there's a very practical sense to that, is those who are merciful will also receive mercy from God as well as from others. So do you see how this is building here? It's not simply just a list of blessed are, blessed are, as if it was just thrown out there in some random way. This is building to a crescendo. And let's look at now what happens in verse 8. When we read, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. So as we are poor in spirit, mourning over our sin, craving righteousness, it produces a purity in our hearts. A purity that is committed to waging the long war to eradicate sin. That is committed to Not becoming complacent and allowing sin to slip in, but to root it out, to hunt it down. And look at what the promise is given for these people. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. They will experience a deep, intimate communion and relationship with God. This isn't just the idea of seeing, as in a physical seeing. So I could say that in two days, my parents who live in Maine are coming down to see us, but that doesn't mean they're going to get on the plane, fly down, come out of the airport, see our family standing there, wave at us, and then turn around and get back on the plane and go home. They're going to come. They're going to spend time with us. They're going to enjoy the closeness and the joy of fellowship and communion with us. And those who have a purity of heart that comes from mourning over their sin and craving righteousness, Scripture says they will see God. And then how does that flesh itself out? In verse 9, we read, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Those who have seen God and who enjoy a deep and personal communion and fellowship with him, that will be fleshed out in making peace as he himself made for peace. So someone who is humble and merciful, they have a hunger for righteousness and a pure heart, they are not now self-seeking and trying to advance their own ambitions or agenda. They're not fighting and scratching and clawing when they feel deprived of something. And they don't insist on getting their own rights or what's, what's fair. And they don't spend time gossiping or sniping at people who might oppose them. They make for peace. And I think this peace is in two ways. Just as Jesus Christ, when he came, he made for peace between men and God, and also between, or I should say, among men, among mankind. And so, we have been given, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, this ministry of reconciliation. We are to be agents of reconciling people to God. Those who don't know Christ. Those who are estranged from him. We are to be the agents, the peacemakers, the brokers of peace that go and bring peace between the two opposing parties. But we are also to be making peace with one another. There is so much in the world that divides us today. But Christ's values call us to make for peace to the point where everywhere this kind of person goes, peace follows. And the promise given with this is that the peacemakers will be called sons of God. The idea behind that is this person who is pure in heart, who has seen God, will now accurately reflect God to the world. They will be called a son of God. When we were in Cameroon and my son, Elliot, was born, as he was growing up, the Cameroonians had two ways of describing him. They would describe him, number one, as the little pastor. Or number two, they would look at me and say, that's your photocopy. (laughs) What did they mean by that? By looking at him, there was no question who he belonged to. One look at him and it was very evident And those who are expressing these values of the kingdom, as the world looks at us, they will look at us and have no question who we belong to. Our primary identity won't be to any political or social agenda. They will look at us and say, oh, I know who that is. That's a photocopy of God. That is what we are called to be. But what will happen... Quickly, in closing, because our time is is quickly finishing. What will happen when we attempt to live this way in this world? Before the, the fullness of the kingdom comes, if we are living out these values, what is going to happen? Look at what Jesus says in verse 10 and following. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then, as if we think that Jesus might just be talking in a general sense, he gets very specific in verse 11 and 12, and he says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So what do we do? When we live this way, the world is not going to understand it and the world is not going to accept it. Because what happens to the meek and the merciful and the peacemakers of this world? They often get trampled on, don't they, in this world. They get persecuted, they get reviled, they get slandered. But Jesus says, when you experience all of this on account of me, look at what he says in verse 12, Rejoice and be glad, because your reward is great in heaven. And what Jesus is telling us is that we are not living for the here and now. The kingdom that we are longing for is not one here on this earth. It is a future heavenly kingdom in which everything will be different. And so then in verses 13 down through 15, Jesus gives two illustrations of salt and of light. And basically the point of his illustration is if the salt isn't salty anymore, what good is it? If the light is hidden under a basket, what purpose does it serve? the salt and light, in order to be useful, it must fulfill the purpose for which it was created. And in the same way, he says, verse 16, we have to let our light shine before others. By fleshing out all of these characteristics that he spoke of from verse 3 down through verse 12, this is the purpose for which we are here. If we are Believers in Jesus Christ. If these kingdom values are in us and in our hearts, there, there is a different purpose for which we are here on the earth. It's to reflect God. And if we are going to do that, we need to be willing to let our light shine. We need to be willing to fulfill the purpose for which we were placed here, knowing that there is a greater kingdom coming. And it's the kingdom for which we pray, for which we long, and in which all of these values and the people who espouse these values will no longer be marginalized, will no longer be rejected, but they will be elevated with Jesus Christ. So as we consider this passage this morning, I encourage you, as you look through these values, ask yourself the question, are these values in my heart and being fleshed out in my life? This is the purpose for which Christ has left us here on this earth. And I love what he says at the end of verse 16. When we live this way, when our light shines, what happens? Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and do what? glorify your Father who is in heaven. May God be glorified in our lives as we seek to live out the values of his kingdom for his glory. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father God, we realize at what point and to what level we fall short of this, These values that you have for your children, God, we, apart from Jesus Christ, we could never hope to live in this way. But Father, you have given us your Holy Spirit to live inside us. So I pray, God, that you would make this true of us. The things that we have heard and seen this morning burn these characteristics into our heart. Give us an understanding of who we are without you so that we might be poor in spirit, that we might mourn over our sin, that we might crave righteousness, and that we might reflect you in the world, God, for your glory. Do this, we ask, for the sake of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.